We're going to be in uh, the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. So it's Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. I'd encourage you um, to uh, open up a Bible and uh, find Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. That's where we'll be spending our time this morning. Here is uh, God's word from Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to your word here this morning, You know that we have been hearing many, many words from many, many different people, many different outlets in the past week, expressing different uh, arguments, um, expressing different um, statements, beliefs. Lord, now we need to hear from you. So, Father, help us. We need to hear your words. We need to know that your word is truth. And we pray that you would use your word to sanctify your people and to bring faith to those who need to hear it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I chose this passage uh, in Titus 2. Because right in the middle of it, right in the middle of this paragraph, we have a phrase which is quoted in Article 9 of our Statement of Faith, that is, our blessed hope. Again, in our Article 9, our blessed hope is how the statement refers to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It it reads, we believe in the personal bodily and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ at a time known only to God, demands constant expectancy, and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. So if we're going to adhere to a statement of faith, then we must be sure that the statement we are adhering to is faithful to what Scripture says. It must reflect biblical teaching, not just what we might want it to say. So I thought it'd be good for us to go to the very passage that's quoted here in Article 9, which also reveals the basis for what our statement of faith says must be our response to the knowledge of the coming of the Lord, that it motivates the believer to godly living, that is, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, 
and living self-controlled, upright lives. Also, sacrificial service, which means being zealous for good works, being zealous to, to, to serve the Lord through loving our neighbor. And then energetic mission, which again points to being zealous to make disciples, to spread the message of the gospel to all those who have not yet believed. So taking this approach reveals something about our statement of faith that I've been been very encouraged about since the Free Church adopted this statement at the National Conference in St. Louis that Greta and I attended um, 12 years ago. That's how biblically faithful the statement is. I'm just very encouraged about that. So this morning we are going to focus on this paragraph from God's Word in Titus 2 and hear what it says to us about our blessed hope, the coming of the Lord Jesus. We will also see what it, what it teaches us, or that it teaches us, how to think about the time we are currently living in, what our lives are to be like in this, this time, this present age, and what ought to characterize those of us who are longing for Christ's return. We are not to, to wait for his return like we wait for movies to start when we go to the movie theater, you know, just you know, sitting quietly, eating popcorn, and impatiently staring at a, a large screen. Rather, we are to be actively working, actively doing the very things our Lord has called us to do while we wait for his return. So our main theme from uh, this paragraph is that the past grace and coming glory of Jesus Christ motivates us to live godly lives and to be zealous to do good works. First heading here over verses 11 through 13, we live between two appearings. We live between two appearings. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it is important to know what time it is. As you read the Bible, one of the most important things you need to be aware of when you are reading a certain passage is what is the time here? You know, when does this passage take place in biblical history? Is it, is it before or after the exodus from Egypt? Is it before or after the reign of King David when God made his covenant promise with David? Is it before or after the Babylonian exile? You know, those are all major events in the history of God's people which, which help you to know what time it is when you're trying to understand a Bible passage. But probably the most important historical marker by far in biblical history is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, that event is so important that Western civilization has marked time according to that event. History is divided according to that very event. Historical years are marked by B.C., or AD. BC stands for before Christ, and AD actually stands for a Latin phrase, which means in the year of our Lord. The birth of Christ is the marker 
that divides the two descriptions. That's why it's called in the year of our Lord in the age we are now living in. And here in Titus 2, 11 through 14, we're shown how important it is for us to know what time it is. The time we live in, this present age, is the time between the two appearings of the Son of God. He has appeared in his incarnation, in his life and, and death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. The Bible tells us he was then given all authority in heaven and on the earth and that he ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So that was his first appearing, which is um, uh, described here in verse 11 as the grace of God which brought salvation for all people. Or another way to understand that phrase is is how the, the NIV has it. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This, of course, refers to the gracious, saving work of the Lord Jesus for sinners in his life, death, and resurrection. That first appearing of Christ defines every Christian. It is the appearing or the revealing of God's grace toward all those who were under his wrath because of our sin. So God is is holy and he is just. And we are sinful. We are sinful in that our lives have been marked by disobedience, by unbelief. And our hearts have loved created things rather than the creator. Our tongues have have spoken lies and curses against others whom we were trying to hurt with our words. We have even uttered curses and complaints against God himself. Our minds have devised wicked plans and our souls have, have desired what belongs to our neighbor, that which we are not permitted to have. We have all rejected God's ways and his rule over us. And so we are under his just condemnation for our sin. And we would have all faced his condemnation in hell for all eternity if not for this first appearing of Christ. For when Christ first appeared, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Sinners like us. Not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, like, like you and I. Not, not just for those who were born into you know, church-going religious families, but for those who have never heard of Christ before. Not just for the majority culture in a nation, but also for the host of different minority peoples. Not just for the wealthy, but also for the poor. When the grace of God appeared in the sinless life and willing sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, he made it possible for all sorts of people to be saved. All those who turn to him in faith and repentance. So is that you? Is your life defined by the grace of his first appearing? Is your life marked by the appearing of the grace of God in Christ? Now, there is yet another appearing that we are are, are told about here. It is the appearing of the glory 
of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, there in verse 13. Uh, Whereas the, the first appearing revealed the grace of God in Christ, the second appearing will, will reveal the glory of God in Christ. Our lives are marked by these two appearings. When we look back, we see a historical event that took place on the earth about 2,000 years ago in, in, in Israel. The Son of God came into the world to save sinners, and anyone who puts their trust in Jesus will be granted this undeserved favor of God, his grace. So we look back and we see God's grace in Christ. He was condemned instead of us. He bore God's wrath so we can enjoy God's pleasure. That's what every Christian sees when he or she looks back. And when we look forward, we see another appearing. Another appearing coming. This appearing will be the glory of God revealed in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And glory here means, it means weight. The glory of God is the full weight of God, the the heaviness of who God is. We have yet to see him as he really is, but, 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 but when he comes, we will finally see the Lord Jesus Christ for all that he is. When he, when he walked on the earth with his disciples, he had to, to hide his glory. For the time had not yet come for his glory to be fully revealed. Three of his disciples got a glimpse of his glory when Jesus brought them up on the mountain and he was transfigured before them there. They saw his glory, but soon when he appears, we will all see him. We will see him fully as he really is. For us, this appearing, this coming, this is our blessed hope to finally see him, to recognize him, to finally have our faith turned into sight. There's nothing more wonderful for those who know and love Jesus than to finally see him. John Chrysostom, a preacher who is known as one of the church fathers, said it like this in one of his sermons. He said, for nothing is more blessed and more desirable than that appearing. Words are not able to represent it. The blessings thereof surpass our understanding. That is what it will be like for all those in Christ by faith. But it will be a different experience for any who have rejected Christ, for those who refuse to believe, who have refused to submit to him as Lord. You see, throughout the the Old Testament, the glory of God is also seen as a threat. For example, Moses in Exodus 33 asks the Lord to see his glory. And how did the Lord respond to him? He said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. So God put Moses into a cleft in the rock and covered him. And and Moses was only able to, to, to see the afterglow of God's glory as he passed by. The appearing of God's glory in Christ then is a threat to those who do not worship and serve the Lord. When we watch or hear the news each day, that should be on our minds. He is coming. His glory will be revealed. He came once to redeem. He will come again to bring judgment. 
as the Apostles' Creed puts it, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So do you know what time it is? We live now in this present age between these two appearings. The grace of God in Christ has appeared, bringing salvation, and the glory of God in Christ will soon appear, the blessed hope for all those in Christ, but the great terror for all those who are his enemies. So how ought this to affect us? How should this affect us? Well, secondly, we see that God's saving grace pushes and the glory of Christ's appearing pulls us toward godly living. Again, we find this throughout this paragraph, 11 through 14 here. God's saving grace pushes and the glory of Christ's appearing pulls us toward godly living. When I was finally old enough to drive, the first car that my parents had for me was a 1980 Chevrolet Citation. My older sister drove it before me, And you don't see many Chevy citations on the road anymore, and there is a reason for that. They were not the nicest looking of vehicles in the uh, hatchback category, and from what I can tell, their primary purpose for existing was to be given to young teenagers as their beater cars. They really got beat on. I definitely beat on mine. There are a few times that I just wouldn't be able to get the thing running, but my friends would help me by, by giving it a push, either with their vehicles or, or just by hand. With, and with their help, I'd, I'd be able to get, it to, go, to get it going again. During the winter months, there were also more than a few times where I would get that citation stuck in, in a snow drift or stuck in some, in some wet, uh, uh, muddy, muddy area, and then I would depend on one of my friends who had a 1979 Ford Bronco who just loved to pull me out whenever I got it stuck. Now, don't get me wrong, that, that citation was a good first car for me, but there were definitely times where I needed it, where I needed a good push or a pull to get that thing going to where I needed to be. Our lives are also in need of a good push and pull in order for us to become who we need to be. These verses show us that, that God, by his grace, has provided us with that push and pull for our spiritual lives by these two appearings that are, that are described here. It says that the appearing of the grace of God, which made it possible for sinners like us to have salvation, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is the effect that God's grace is to have on us personally. God's grace transforms our hearts. Faith in Christ for salvation does not just get us saved, it it trains us or it teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That is, God's saving grace in Christ teaches us to hate our sin. It teaches us to, to despise it. We are taught to think of sin as the most awful, disgusting thing we could ever do, for it is our sin which put Jesus, the Lord of glory, on the cross. It was our sin 
which he had to suffer and bleed and gasp for air for on that cross. Therefore, we are to renounce it, to say no to living a life which is against God and his ways. And instead, we are to live self-controlled, that is, live self-controlled in relationship to our desires, and upright, that is, live upright in relationship toward others, and godly, that is, in our relationship towards God. When I was younger, there was a movement in the church in America that, that, that taught you could truly consider yourself to be a Christian and have salvation without having any concern toward obeying the commands of the Lord Jesus. It taught that salvation was just you know, giving mental assent to the reality that Jesus Christ is the Savior for sinners. But submitting to Jesus as Lord was, was not necessary to be a part of his kingdom. Well, these verses here in Titus are just another of the many, many examples in Scripture that teaches that to be saved by Christ is to become a changed person. A genuine Christian is a new person, one who renounces ungodliness and worldly passions and begins to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. But living this way doesn't earn salvation for us, for it clearly says that through Christ's first appearing, we can already receive salvation through God's grace. Salvation is a gift of God. It is the undeserved favor of God through our acceptance of Christ's work on our behalf. But if, we're really, if we really receive that grace, well, then it will train us or it will push us to live a godly life. Like my friends pushed and pulled my citation to help it come alive for me, God's grace and his appearing push and pull us to live a life that honors the Lord. Now we look back and, and see that God has already accepted us through what Christ has done for us. Nothing we do, no amount of righteousness that we could have in ourselves can improve our standing with God that, that kindness, that, that love, that sacrifice for us then will motivate us to want to please him. We will desire to, to honor him through our obedience to his word. And if that isn't the condition of our hearts, if we're actually quite comfortable to live in, in ungodly ways and, and to enjoy worldly passions, then it probably means we haven't experienced God's saving grace. We don't know it. But we aren't just pushed by God's grace into godliness. We're also pulled by Christ's glory as well. Here again it says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This, this hope is not just a hope like, you know, boy, I, I sure hope we get some rain this week. No, no, in the Bible the word hope for the Christian describes the confident anticipation of what will surely come to pass. The Christian is confident that Christ will return in glory to reign on the earth, and so it encourages us to persevere in our obedience and suffering in the present age. So are you being pushed by God's grace and pulled by his coming glory to live your life to please him in this life? 
Has God's saving grace affected your mind in what you think about and how you respond to temptations to pursue worldly passions? Has the reality of your salvation through his giving of himself as an atoning sacrifice affected your speech in what you say to others? Has the sure hope of his coming glory affected how you respond to others in our nation who make you angry or espousing a belief in the media that you disagree with? Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We're going to look at that last phrase now in verse 14. The people of Christ are zealous for good works. I wonder, when you are doing your your daily Bible reading or when you are studying a particular passage in depth, are you ever just, just struck by a certain sentence or even just a phrase within a sentence? I suspect you probably are at various times. After all, God uses his word to to shape us, to to mold us, and to convict us of sin and areas where we need to be challenged in our thinking. Well, for me, out of all the words in this paragraph, I have to admit that these are the words which really caught my attention. Zealous for good works. And of course, in context, this, this teaching means that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He came and died to purify a certain people to be zealous, that is, to be devotedly eager extremely committed to perform good deeds. And I thought, Clint, is that what you are known for? Is that how others would describe your commitment toward doing good works for others? Am I really zealous? Am I really eager? Am I really committed to doing good works? Or am I zealous for working for my own good? Am I zealous for my own comfort? What needs to change in my heart for me to be zealous for good works? That is how these words hit me this week. And I believe we, we should all ponder these questions as, as we reflect on these words. I don't know how the protests and the riots in our nation's cities have affected you the past few weeks, but I have been troubled by them. I've been troubled by the outright lawlessness and depravity of man that's being revealed in places where the police are being ordered to stand down. I've also been troubled by the escalated divisiveness and anger that we're seeing between American citizens. And I've had to ask the question, what am I supposed to think about all this? How should I respond? What is the truth? How should I think about Fellow Christians who are black, who believe there is systemic racism in our nation, in our cities, and even in our churches. 
Now, I've been told by different church leaders and, and commentators, you know, what my response should be to all of this, but, but what is the right response? What's the godly response? Well, whatever your understanding about what is going on is, it seems to me that the Christian's response to this must be to be zealous, to do good on behalf of our neighbors and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Be they people of color who feel oppressed or those who are in law enforcement, we ought to zealously desire to love them, to serve them, to do good for them. I don't know what that would look like for you, but for me, what I did is I, I called our new friend, uh, Pastor Luther Eatman in Kansas City. I asked how he and his family were doing. I asked how we could pray for them. And we discussed some, some more potential ways that, that, that our church could be a blessing to them, particularly a blessing to the elementary school in their community that they are working hard to support. I also called a few men of our church together to pray for our nation, and we've done that the past two weeks. And I'm still considering other ways to do good for our neighbors in our own community, primarily how we can create opportunities to share the love of Christ and to speak the gospel to those who are outside of faith in Christ. So brothers and sisters, what might that mean for you? How will you pursue to do good works in our current culture, our current climate, in this present age? It may not mean something you know, really big. It may just mean being a loving, faithful example of a mother or a wife or a loving, faithful example of a father or a husband. As outlined here in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 of Titus, you should look at those verses later today and see the good works that Paul is referring to there. But be zealous for good works. Be zealous for good works in your own home or your own family. Be zealous for doing good within your own church and your own community. As we consider the glorious return of Christ, may it motivate us to godly living sacrificial service, and energetic mission to be zealous for good works until he comes. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your saving grace which appeared in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. May your grace continue to transform our lives now may the sure and certain hope that we have of the appearing of his glory energize us to be zealous for good works as we live in these last days before his return. We pray this in the powerful, glorious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Behold, he is coming soon. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen.